We're back with part two of our interview with Mike Steidel. Again, he's the director of admission at Carnegie Mellon University, where he currently oversees around 30 staff members, and he's been there for 34 years, and he has been the director since he was 29 years old. And so uh, I thought there has to be a ton of wisdom when it comes to leading in an organization that we can glean from. And so all the the questions coming up are all about leadership in the workplace uh, or in your organization. And so thanks again for joining us, Mike. We're glad you're here. And my first question is that you were always around young leaders and pouring into them. And what advice do you find yourself giving most often when it comes to them pursuing a career, their education, and things of that nature? Well, I think, you know, we talked a, a little bit about it uh, in the first session, and that first you, you've got to dream big. I think, you know, you've, you've ultimately, um, I think so many young leaders are untested, and so they're um, afraid to make a mistake. But I think that in general you almost really have to be ready to make a mistake because I think those mistakes can be the best learning tools um, as you go forward as a leader. And so I definitely recognize that some of my growth, a lot of my growth came uh, in working for a guy that uh, let me make mistakes. And uh, in learning from those mistakes, obviously you don't want to repeat them, but you know they're great learning tools. And so if you think that you're going to become a great leader without making mistakes, you're, you're totally mistaken. And, and so you really have to recognize that those mistakes are great teaching tools and, and and hopefully you'll be working in an environment that um, is not only tolerant of mistakes, but um, you know, almost welcoming them. And, and in fact, really, uh, I, I worked for a guy that you know, almost had the, 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 the mantra of, you know, even if you do it wrong, it's better than not doing anything at all. Uh, and so it's just really having the opportunity to learn through mistakes is really important. And so I feel like that's really, really huge. That's great. Well, one of the first things I learned about you is that you value education, and uh, you made that very, you made that a priority in telling me um, in our time together. But uh, can you just talk about that? How important is education when it comes to landing a job? Um, how important is what you major in uh, versus what you actually end up doing? And how you know should people? Well, we'll, we'll get to that question later. But what do you say about that? Yeah. So at the ten thousand foot level, I mean, really, education is nothing more than an really helping you develop a mindset of continuing to think and learn and grow well beyond the graduation platform. And so uh, it's, it's, you, go to, you go to college essentially to develop that kind of a skill set and that kind of a mindset and that kind of a culture in preparing you to lead the rest of your life. And so is it important uh, vocationally in terms of what you choose to major in? In some ways, yes. I mean, it's hard to be an engineer if you're majoring in music, but it's not necessarily fatal in the sense that if you major in music and ultimately want to become an engineer, that you can't go back and, and uh, you know, change, change directions and change paths. And so I think the most important thing is that you've got to get on track or you've got to develop the mindset that higher education is important. It just opens lots of doors that you won't see open with just a high school education. And so it's, it's hugely important. It'll change the direction of your life. It'll change the elevation of your life in terms of how far you can go. And so, uh, and with more education, you can go even further. But I think that um, there is a point where education can open those doors and then experience takes over. And so 
uh, I, I do think that um, education isn't the answer to everything. It's the starting point, but it isn't always the ending point. I think the learning um, process has to be continual. And so learning can um, take place well beyond you know, the college experience. And so I don't think that learning should ever stop. Uh, and just as experience should never end either. And so it's this combination of learning and experiencing and learning and experiencing that really is, I think, ultimately optimal in, in terms of developing as a leader. Great. Can you talk, as far as careers, can you just talk a little bit, whether it's pursuing the right career, et cetera, about making money? I mean, obviously, everyone needs to make money. We need to support our families. And I find that a lot of people pursue a job or a career based on the amount of money they think they can bring in. And I know you have been pretty successful, um, but it, you weren't always successful financially. Can you just talk about that, the, the importance of pursuing money versus pursuing your passion? Sure. I think that, you know, obviously, um, if you're not doing what you love, uh, it, it'll ultimately have an effect on your own personal happiness and the kind of lifestyle that you live. And even ultimately the kind of person you become. I mean, you can be a very unhappy person uh, as a result of the work that you do. And, and so I think that in general, as you pursue a vocation or a job uh, or, um, you know, something that, uh, that will obviously, you know, help you make a living, uh, it is, you know, m making a living is ultimately really about doing the things that you really, really want to do and love doing. And, and not every job is like that. And I recognize that, you know, jobs can be just jobs. But I think that if you're really going to find something that's your life's work, your life's call, it's got to be something that is well beyond how much you get paid to do. And it's, it's really developing a set of skills uh, and ultimately uh, a set of, of abilities and drawing out a set of talents that um, that are just uniquely yours that you know you ultimately you know want to use for the rest of your life and so I think that um, while I wasn't always you know in the position that I'm in now and from a financial sense um, it wasn't my driving factor to be honest with you I mean it really I mean what drove me was what I did and and what I did I felt made a difference in the lives of others and not every job you know can be like that but every job that you decide is going to be your life's work ought to bring you uh, a certain amount of satisfaction and pleasure in recognizing that man I was born to do this and and so and when you get that sense that you're growing and developing and, you know, loving your life, um, in many ways, you can't pay me enough, you know, not to have that. And yeah. so it really is about that. And if you are, you know, that kind of person that has, that develops that kind of, of personal satisfaction out of what you're doing, the lifestyle that you lead and the people that you're around will all benefit from the fact that, you know, you're having that kind of an experience. That's great. So you started at the, the bottom of the rung, according to email, and worked your way up in admissions, and now you're the director. So you went from basically a position where you probably didn't have much decision-making power at all to now, hey, you have to make all the decisions, the big calls. What would you say the, the biggest decisions you make uh, right now as a leader are? Well, I think that, um, you know, it's interesting, you know, and if, if that's your perception of what I do, but I think in general, um, one of the things that, I've, I've gotten much better at and much more confident at 
is giving away all my decision-making power. Hmm. Uh, and when you really get to the point where, you know, you recognize, man, I don't really make very many decisions in my organization. I've empowered other people to make those decisions. And what does that really do to me? I mean, it really forces me to make sure, first of all, I've got the right people in place to make those choices or make those decisions on my behalf and on behalf of the organization that I serve. But second is to make sure that they've had the experiences and the training uh, necessary to be able to do that. And, you know, what that really does is it makes them so vital to the organization and they have a sense that, you know, the organization is, is, is theirs too. It's not just you know, mine. And so um, I often will defer to the people that are around me saying, what do you think is the best thing to do in this, in this case? Or, you know, what do you think is best? Um, what should we do? Um, when I have an idea about what we should do, but, you know, really ultimately, you know, empowering them uh, to help them develop the same sense that I would. And so de facto, you're really mentoring the people that are around you. But uh, in general, if you're the one that has all of the decision-making power in the organization, you've built the organization, you know, in the wrong way. I mean, you really want people around you that have the, the confidence and the power to, to really, you know, shape the future. And if you're um, surrounding yourself with all um, yes men and yes women, um, it's only going to be as good uh, and as high as your as you are as a leader. And if you are confident in the fact that, you know, you're there to support um, the, the leadership team around you and help them develop to be the best that they can, you can take your organization much, much higher than you could just on your own. And so I think that as a leader, the most important thing that you can do is find leaders beneath you that you can empower um, to make um, really intelligent choices about, you know, the direction of the organization and help them develop. And the better developed they are, the higher, the farther, the faster you'll go. So a large part of success is having the right people in the right seat at the table. Uh, what qualities do you look for in up-and-coming leaders or the people that you would put in your inner circle or the, the people to make those decisions? Well, I think, first of all, is competence. Uh, you know, you definitely want them to, uh, you know, to be able to do the job, have the capacity to get the job done. And so, and I think some of it is um, uh, character and recognizing that, you know, the people around you reflect uh, you know, the value system of the organization that you represent. And I think some of it's chemistry as well. I mean, you got to come to work and you spend most of your, your day with the people that you work with, uh, sometimes more than even your own immediate family. And so if you don't have some kind of chemistry with them, if you don't enjoy being with them, um, why, why would you want to put those people, you know, in your path? And so ultimately, I think it's competence and it's character and it's chemistry. Those are the big things for me. That's great. And this is just a, a fun question, but if you're faced with two equally qualified candidates to, to be in that position, how do you determine who you would pick? I think that in general, I, like, I look for ways that people have gone the extra mile, and I like to hear how they define what going the extra mile actually is. Because, I mean, really, ultimately, you know, the kind of, of manager and supervisor and leader that I am, I'm not going to stand there with a stopwatch and measure the extra mile that they go. I just want them, I just want it to be part of the culture. I feel like I go the extra mile, and I expect that people that are around me are going to 
do the same thing and go the extra mile. Uh, and so I like to hear what their perception of going the extra mile is and to see uh, in the ways in which they think they've gone the extra mile in their experience in the past. And, and oftentimes, you know, people, what people think is going the extra mile is ultimately nothing more than meeting expectations of the organization that they work for. And so it's interesting when you think I'm going the extra mile and really all I'm really doing is, is, is fulfilling the requirements or the expectations of the job that I've got. Um, you've got a disconnect in terms of what going the extra mile is and what meeting your standard um, uh, expectations of your responsibilities actually are. Wow. That's great. Well, hey, let's talk vision. Obviously, part of the leader's job is to cast vision. So a few questions on that. Do you set aside specific time to cast vision to your employees and other leaders? I would say yes. Um, you know, again, I don't necessarily see that it's my job solely to cast the vision. I think that um, if you're really um, uh, energized by the people around you and they're great people that are around you, the team will cast the vision. Um, I think that um, in general, again, what the leader really does is ultimately um, empower the team to get to, the vi to, to, to achieve the vision. Uh, and so the vision ought not necessarily be just the leader's vision. If you've got a great team of leaders on the team, it's what can you uh, reasonably accomplish together and what can we dream about together uh, as an organization or as a team. And so we definitely go through this cycle of, of doing just that. You know, in our organization, we call them map meetings, but I mean, essentially we're mapping our future. We're trying to figure out um, you know, how we can improve, where we're going, what we want to accomplish, where our challenges are, how can we measure um, what we're accomplishing, how can we do better. And so we do go through this, this continual cycle of um, actually, you know, doing what we talked about in our first session together is, is visioning and then planning and then executing and then um, assessing. And once we've got the vision and the plan down, in all honesty, I mean, that, that gets set, and we don't go back and try to um, redo uh, the plan or the vision. Once, you know, the organization is rolling and, you know, um, the, the plan is rolling out, we don't try to adjust it. We just basically um, make sure that we're um, uh, essentially carrying out the plan that we all said together, this is what we were going to do. Uh, and then once, you know, the experience or the, for us, the cycle, the year is over, we go back and essentially assess and say, how did we do? You know, where did we miss it? Where did we exceed our expectations? But ultimately, what we really want to do is identify what didn't go so well so that we can improve that the next time around. So you basically answered my, my next question, which is, uh, how do you in the organization ensure that its activities are aligned with your vision and core values and don't get off track? It sounds like you guys assess that. Is it once a year? Do you do that more often? Is it a continual refining Yeah, I, I think that it's a continual refining process, and it ought to be um, a, a cycle. And however long your cycle is will determine how often you can do it. And so if your cycle happens monthly, then it would be 12 times a year. If your cycle happens semi-annually, then it would be twice a year. I mean, it just happens that, you know, um, for me, the admission cycle takes a year to go through. And so as a result, we do it once a year. However, there are, there are different components of our, uh, of our process that happen throughout the year. 
So, um, for example, our big brainstorming sessions that are pretty wide open are in June, uh, and those are our visioning um, uh, meetings. And then in July, we start the plan, and so we set the plan in uh, in place. And so um, the plan comes in July. So then really July onward is execution, and we just really come back in December to make sure that we're executing the right way and, again, trying to think about, you know, refining the plan for the next six months. Uh, and then um, after those six months finish, we, we do this big session where we bring everyone together and without suggesting any solutions at all, we just talk about what can we improve. Um, and so everybody has a say. Uh, I don't do any talking at all. Um, I write, in fact, I record their ideas, what their thoughts are. And so it's not an evaluation session at all. If somebody from the least to the greatest in the organization thinks we can do a better job in an area, we write it down, we consider it, we evaluate it, we assess it. Oftentimes they're right. And so, um, and sometimes, you know, in a given year, we recognize that we're not going to get to be able to improve that this year, but we're going to keep it on the list for next year. But um, we've We've made huge progress in our organization primarily because we continually look at what can we do better and how can we make it better. That's great. So a new employee comes into to your organization. How do you help them understand the culture? Uh, how do you get them to get the vision? Yeah, actually I've changed a lot on this um, topic as well over the years. It used to be me um, trying to do that. And to be honest with you, I recognized that you know I was making a, a mistake since I really wasn't the culture. Um, I mean, so now it's the employees, it's the team that does that. I don't have anything to do with it whatsoever. They tell them, um, this is the way, this is the culture here. This is the way it works. This is the way it happens. And so I've given that up uh, entirely. And, and so our own team has developed a training process. They actually sit down and, and get people up to speed. They help them with their expectations. I don't do any of that anymore. Uh, and so I've really let it go and recognizing that, if I was telling someone about the culture and it really wasn't the culture, I was missing it and, and not really helping that employee really get a good firm foothold on what it was to or what it was like to work in this organization. So I just took myself out of it completely and I basically gave it to the people that that are making the organization run and said, Look, you know, here's the next person. It's your responsibility to help them get up to speed and, and figure out how to be successful in, in our organization. And so, and they've done they've done a much better job than I could do. Wow. So you've been at the organization for 34 years, and I think this next question will be. I'm really interested to hear your answer. As an organization gets larger, there could be a tendency for the uh, institution to dampen the inspiration. How do you keep that from happening uh, within the organization? Well, I. I it, I think the biggest way for me was we definitely went through a reorganization maybe about uh, eight or nine years ago. I mean, it used to be a pretty flat organization. Everybody reported to me. I was everyone's direct supervisor. Uh, and really, I, I recognized I was driving myself insane and, and really uh, ultimately not helping the people that were on the team because I couldn't give the feedback that they needed or wanted uh, on a consistent or regular basis. And so I basically said, look, we've got to do this in teams. And, you know, so uh, all of our associates, uh, associate directors uh, uh, actually lead a team. And that's where a lot of the work gets done. Uh, and, you know, we, uh, it's my job to basically 
um, touch base with our associates to make sure that um, you know they are running as free from obstacles and barriers and impediments as they possibly can and that they're continuing to grow and do a great job but um, they have much more it's a, um, a, a team of typically you know five to maybe seven people in the office and uh, they ultimately um, get much more direct feedback they get much more uh, I think um, uh, direct understanding about what's going on in their area of the office uh, we run much more efficiently this way and so I think just in general um, you know having been there so long and recognizing that um, you know it's it could be easy to be discouraged but to be honest with you I don't think I've ever really felt that I mean I, at times I felt overwhelmed by the the complexity and the size of what we have to accomplish um, and uh, certainly as we look at near 30,000 application decisions you know that we have to make this year uh, and recognize that we have about eight weeks to do it in it's it is overwhelming at times yeah. but um, you know again the system is set up to, to, to handle that to work through it and uh, you know I we haven't had a cycle yet where we didn't uh, get an admission decision to everyone who deserved one so I think just in general it was um, essentially um, giving everyone, empowering everyone to make make the decisions in, in, in the office, and so I gave away all the power. I don't. I, I gave it all away. I love that. I love that a lot. Um, what is the biggest challenge facing leaders today? Big question. <clears throat> I think it's twofold. I think one is uh, uh, confidence, uh, and and I do think that um, confidence. Uh, is tied to the second one, which is experience. Uh, no doubt about it. Um, my confidence has grown as my experience has grown. Uh, and so I think in general, young leaders tend to be tentative. Uh, and again, perhaps afraid to make mistakes, want to do it perfectly, uh, and oftentimes want to do it all themselves. You know, I don't know of any young leader that wants to give away any responsibility that they have. Uh, you know, and again, as a young leader, I didn't want to give that away either. I wanted the responsibility. I wanted the power. I wanted it all. And recognizing that the most effective leaders are those that do it just the opposite. They turn the organization upside down and recognize that you want to put the most power with the people that are, you know, essentially in a position to be able to make effective change and, and really to bring, you know, the organization you know, uh, its biggest growth. And so oftentimes that means people down on the line, people that are directly responsible for customers, or in this case, prospective students. Uh, I, I definitely have just given that all away. But I, I didn't do that as a young leader. And it took me a long time to develop the confidence uh, uh, and the experience um, to tell me, you know, if I was holding it all, I was making a mistake. And so I think that we operate in a much better, um, uh, more efficient way in letting people have that um, uh, empowerment. And so I, I would definitely say that. I think, too, that um, oftentimes young leaders can be scattered. Uh, and I think that just in general, um, having um, someone, you know, who's on their team to really help them be, stay focused. And again, as we talked about in our first session, study the course, keep going. I think so often, you know, young leaders get discouraged often and, you know, don't feel like they want to invest the time uh, to, to experience the real breakthrough that's coming if they just stick with it. And so uh, I think that there is a 
a, a good amount of, of you know, essentially fortitude that's necessary in, in developing leaders, and and they they just got to stay with it. And if they stay with it long enough, they'll experience the breakthrough that that is going to be necessary to give them the right experience and ultimately the confidence to keep going. Great. You may have just answered this, but you may have a different answer. What's the one mistake you witness leaders making more frequently than others? In terms of mistakes, um, uh, again, I think that, well, I think that, you know, for young leaders, um, and it is perhaps tied to um, the concept that we just talked about in terms of wanting all the um, power and responsibility, it's it's not really being open and, and looking for a group uh, of peers to share with. Um, and I think that uh, in some ways, young leaders want to do it all themselves. Uh, and they're, they isolate themselves as opposed to um, uh, essentially open up direct access to others that might have, that might be peers but yet competitors, you know, for um, future positions. But ultimately, I, I think that the best leaders are those that are willing to lay it all down and be open, honest, vulnerable, uh, uh, and, and transparent. And I think that those qualities are really important in, in young leaders. But I think in general, the tendency among young leaders is not to be open and vulnerable and transparent, but to look like they've got it all together, to say, I can do it all. I don't need any help. I don't need any assistance. Uh, and ultimately, um, you can only go as far as your own abilities and talents will take you uh, and not any farther. So you end up being your own lid in terms of how far you can go. That's good. What's one behavior or one trait that you've seen derail leaders' careers? I think that in general, um, you know, some of it is, uh, again, jealousy and thinking that um, others have it better. They're, the grass is greener in other places. I've definitely had some really great employees leave, you know, for what they thought were to be greener pastures, only to come back and say, oh, my gosh, <laughs> I didn't realize how great it was to work in an organization like this. And even though they may have left for more money, it's not more satisfying. And so, you know, I think that when an organization runs well, um, even though it may not necessarily be, you know, uh, optimal financially, uh, it can be just a great learning uh, experience and a growing experience and one where you just feel like, man, this is just such a great fit for me in terms of, you know, my talents and abilities and, and desires to really make a difference or or make a contribution to what we do overall as an organization. And so I think that um, in general, it can be easy to get dissatisfied quickly. Uh, and and so I think that, um, you know, looking for the growth opportunities in an organization are really important. And for me, I recognize professional development um, was part of my responsibility uh, as a growing leader. And so I wanted experiences that were gonna help me grow professionally and develop professionally. Some of that was networking. Some of that was actual responsibility. Uh, some of that was, you know, contributing in a service way to the profession outside of the university. Some of it was contributing to the university in a service way as well, outside of, of you know, my own area of responsibility. And sometimes that can mean financially as well as, as time. That's good. Last question. This is kind of a shift of gears, but... Can you explain the impact, if any, that social networking and the Web 2.0 has made on your organization or you personally? 
I would say that um, you know, I mean, there's some there's some really great things about um, social networking that are um, um, wonderful, and that is uh, essentially, you know, the instant um, ability to connect with others um, that I just didn't have growing up uh, uh, through the ranks, and and in fact, really, I think about you know how did I learn? It was really one-on-one development through mentors and through others in the profession, and two was reading books. Uh, I mean, now there's podcasts and RSS feeds, and and you can actually watch video, and 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 I mean the the amazing amount of resources that are now at our fingertips that used to be something that was just much much harder to gain. I think um, in some ways it can be paralyzing by having so much available and yet not knowing exactly what to reach for in terms of help that you can be paralyzed in the sense of, well, who should I listen to? There's so many people and what should I watch and what should I read and who should I talk to that you can spin in circles and just basically, you know, think, oh my gosh, I got to listen to them all. And you can fill your head with a lot of knowledge and yet not really get any better at what you do. And so I find that I want to identify people to listen to and, and, and watch that inspire me. Um, and while I recognize there are others that I could listen to that know a lot more about a topic uh, or um, recognize that they're leaders in their profession or what they do, but if they don't particularly inspire me, it's time in some ways that's wasted uh, because ultimately I can listen, but if I'm not inspired to act, what's the point? Uh, and so I listen to people that inspire me. I read things that inspire me. I try to stay in those realms where if I'm not really inspired, or if I don't really respect the person, or for whatever reason there's not really a connection um, to my life, uh, you know, I respect what they say and recognize there might be a point in my future where that, um, uh, that will inspire me, but right now I'm going to stick with what inspires me. And so I think it can be negative, as I mentioned, in the sense that there's so much out there that you could just, you know, go crazy, you know, wasting a lot of time trying to listen to a lot of people. Uh, and I think, too, you know, the social networking uh, uh, um, phenomena um, ultimately can consume a lot of your time as well. And so, uh, you know, when I think about, you know, what used to consume my time, it was talking to my office mates in the office. And now, um, you know, everyone's in their office on their computers you know, it could be that they're on the web. It could be that they're on Facebook. It could be that they're on Twitter. Um, and yet, um, you know, is that really helping the organization overall? I don't know. Um, you can waste a lot of time on social networking. You know, I've I've put my toes in the water with social networking personally. Uh, I think, you know, personally, I don't find that my life would be all that interesting for others to really want to read about or know about. Uh, and in fact, um, you know, in all honesty, uh, there's a part of me that doesn't, I mean, that, that, that appreciates the privacy of you know, living life the way I live it. But um, I recognize that, um, you know, social media also um, can be a great tool for, you know, getting inspired to take action, getting inspired to reach for something that's beyond yourself and, and, and ultimately, you know, being the inspiration to, to, to be a better person person to be a better manager to be a better human being have you guys used it at all has it changed the organization at all uh 
the use of social media even in talking to applicants or students? Oh, sure, yeah. I mean, we definitely, um, I mean, we have Facebook pages and Twitter and, and you know, we're our, uh, we have Flickr and, and YouTube and iTunes and, you know, all of that that, you know, is great. And, you know, I think that what's, I mean, the audience that I'm really worried about is the 17-year-old college-going population. And so, you know, recognizing, you know, what world are they living in and how are they wanting to digest information, you know, we certainly want to be in that world. And so we've definitely had to develop that. But, again, it hasn't necessarily been at my leadership. It's been recognizing that there are young leaders on our team that recognize that's where 17-year-olds want to live, and they've been leading the way in terms of how to do that. Hmm. And again, it's been me empowering them, saying, let's go for it. Let's do it. Yeah, that's great. Well, that's all the questions I have. Do you have any other thoughts when it comes to leadership in the workplace that you want to share with our listeners before we go? Uh, I just think in general, I mean, you have to commit yourself to a culture of just continuing to grow and and develop. And uh, I don't know that I ever think that I'm the best leader right now that I have ever been. And I really hope that I can continue to grow and develop as a a person and have the experiences that will help me become a better leader in the future. That's great. Thanks, Mike. Thank you for your time, and we'll have to do this again sometime. It was fun. Thank you, Mr. Bubba. <laughs> <laughs> Bye, man. Thank you.